Yes, hello, folks. Welcome to the weekly Global Football Show. I'm your host, as always, Phil Brown. Join us, my regular co-host, excellent Zach Lowy. Of course, as most of you know, you can find Zach at Zach Lowy on Twitter. Uh, and, of course, his fantastic website, Breaking the, Breaking the Lines, BTL. Well worth checking out. Uh, magnificent content. It's always fresh, unique content on there. It's never recycled stuff. It's always stuff about players that aren't exactly making the headlines that uh, that are... You know, things that, that, that aren't the obvious. It's not the, the low-hanging fruit. Definitely go check it out. Uh, some fantastic stuff on there. Zach, nice to talk about, Ned. First of all, how you doing? Doing very well, Phil. Thank you. Uh, happy to be on. Let's do this. Yeah, always a pleasure. Obviously, lots of stuff going on in the transfer market. So one of the things we're going to talk about here is we're going to profile some of the players that have either signed uh, for big clubs or signed for clubs or could be on the move for big clubs uh, and we'll take a look at some of those because we we get asked a lot of questions about that um, first question um, Zach I want to talk about Darwin Nunez of course who has signed for Liverpool and I read mixed reports on this guy uh, some of the negatives in the negative camp I would say are one he's only had one good season two uh, there's some question marks around in his first touch. You'd be better uh, positioned than me to comment on this. Three, uh, when he was having a poor first season, he shut down all social media accounts and uh, he was finding it difficult to, t- to handle the criticism. There's nothing wrong with that because I do think sometimes people go over the top online. Um, but uh, perhaps some people raise question marks about his mental strength and whether if he got off to a bad start at Liverpool, how bad would that be? Uh, would he be able to handle that mentally? So, last to unpack our, with Dominic Nunez, first of all, how would you rate this sentence, Zach? Yeah, absolutely, Phil. I, I, first off, uh, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm happy to talk about Darwin, but I kind of hope this is one of the last times because I've been speaking about <laughs> this kid. Um, I, I spoke with him on an Arsenal fan, uh, fan channel in April, I believe, then a few weeks later on a United fan channel then I've mm-hmm. done two Liverpool um, and sure. as well as written an article. So just uh, kind of been uh, yeah. a little exhausting, but let's, let's talk about Darwin because obviously, you know, he is a player who I, who I do rate very highly. Um, you know, he came through Peñarol's Academy, had some struggles with knee injuries at around 17 years of age. That is, I think one thing to potentially be concerned about looking at his physical profile, but, uh, he has managed to remain fairly injury-free over the past few months. So I think that is definitely a good sign. Uh, he's a player who has handled the physical pressure of playing a ton of football, both for Uruguay and uh, Benfica. But yeah, my I actually started paying attention to Darwin uh, around the start of 2019. Um, and he was uh, finally breaking into the first team at Peñarol. Hadn't played a lot of uh, professional football prior to that but uh, eventually ended up scoring, I think, two goals in the U-20 World Cup. Interestingly enough, playing in the, uh, playing in the same game against Erling Haaland at Norway and uh, scoring in that match. So eventually getting himself a move to Almeria, a team that was looking to end a few, um, I believe, a three-year spell in the Spanish second division at the moment, just been uh, purchased by a very important Saudi official. So after that, you know, a lot of high expectations given the fact that they had spent around, I think, 29 million euros and around half of that was on one player, Darwin. So that is something that, you know, it, it is hard to deal with as a young player, uh, being the club's record signing, right? And we saw him deliver 
on expectations that Almeria, you know, finishing as the fourth top scorer in the league, ultimately uh, just unable to uh, give them promotion, but and that ultimately also saw him uh, sold to Benfica after just one year at Almeria. Once again, for the second straight team, he was the club's all-time leading, all-time uh, most expensive signing. Uh, as you mentioned, had a bit of a uh, down first season, but I would also argue that, frankly, there was no player in that Benfica team uh, that had a good season, honestly. That, that stood out to me. Uh, frankly, it was destined to fail with uh, the club losing to Pawak in the Champions League qualifiers. I think that really set in motion what would be their most embarrassing season in uh, about a decade. So it's, it's very hard to uh, stand out when you're a young player. With that being said, he still finished as the second top assister in the league behind Meditaremi. Um, second season, on the other hand, Benfica, you know, they resisted offers for uh, Darwin from Brighton, who I think were also willing to spend the club record fee. Uh, and let's be honest, when, when Brighton is in for you, that probably means that, you know, they, you've, you've got something about them. We've seen their track record. Yeah, right? yeah they were sending young players, yeah. Exactly. But ultimately, the difference was, whereas Benfica, they lost to Pawak, uh, in last year, and they were forced to sell Ruben Diaz due to the financial impact. Uh, they Benfica managed to qualify for the group stage and obviously ended up getting to the quarterfinals. Um, and I think it was ultimate, ultimately because of that deep run in Europe that, A, they were able to keep hold of Darwin, uh, not just from Brighton in the summer window, but also in West Ham. West Ham were uh, willing to offer £47 million in the January window. Uh, Benfica, they kept hold of Darwin. They believed that they could get top dollar, and uh, they were proven right. So look, uh, one for the third straight team, his, Darwin's third team in Europe, and for the third straight time, he is the club's uh, record signing. And that is definitely something that is hard to deal with as a player, but I think we've seen, in terms of his mentality, his ability to work hard and polish his flaws. I think that he has what it takes mentally to become a real force of nature at Liverpool, and let's be real, there isn't a single manager in recent years who has done a better job of taking these, you know, young players, developing them into world-class uh, attackers, whether that's Robert Lewandowski or uh, Sadio Mane, Mohamed Salah, um, mm -hmm. and Luis Diaz, Diogo Jota, you know, his track record is, is simply fantastic. And honestly, I think that Darwin has what it takes to become a threat in the center forward position you know, you're losing Sadio Mane, who has essentially played as a false nine in recent months. Uh, you are also losing Divac Origi, who is, you know, the club's uh, only, let's say, only natural center forward. So I think it really does make sense to, you know, per perhaps change the way you're, you're trying to attack, changing the yeah. way the goals come from. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, you know, it's also an exceptional Liverpool team. I think if I was Nunez, I mean, and I didn't support Manchester United the way I do, I would pick Liverpool too. I can understand why he would do that. Um, overall, how would you rate his signing? Uh, would you say he's valued for money? Would you say you would have paid that money for him? Listen, I mean, this is, this is a question that I've gotten asked a lot. And the fact is, okay, uh, is Darwin Nunez a 75 million euro player right now? I, I'm not sure, but I think it, I'm not going to say that it's overpriced. And let me explain sure. why. Because when you are signing, when you are paying a club record, you know, 75 million euros 
as well as uh, 25 million euros in add-ons uh, for for this player, a player who's 22 years of age. Okay, a player who has just come off a very good Champions League campaign where he scored against Bayern Munich, Barcelona, uh, Ajax, and Liverpool. A player who has finished atop the uh, top scoring, atop the scorers leaderboards in Portugal, a league that has probably been uh, one of the most effective feeder leagues uh, in recent years, looking at likes of Luis Diaz, uh, Ruben Diaz, Bruno Fernandes, you know, so you are paying, you are looking at all those factors, but you're also looking at the competition, okay? We've seen that plenty of Premier League teams, even when Darwin was not at the best form of his career, which we saw over the past few months, but even then, clubs like West Ham or Brighton willing to pay a ton of money uh, for this player. And, and so you have to take a look at that, as well as the fact that Manchester United were heavily keen on this player. And United, they are not going to allow Liverpool to uh, come away with a player without a fight. Uh, they, they can match them, at the very least, in terms of finances. So that was always going to, I think, give it, uh, give it a, a price hike. And the final thing, Phil, is that, look, the center forward position, when you look, going back to uh, last week's episode, if you haven't, definitely check it out. When, when you look at the most expensive signings, right, how many of those players are attackers? How many of them are center forwards, right? A lot of them are, are center forwards. So I think that position, more than anything, you are paying that premium, right? You've got yes, to yes, pay yes. above the goods. And, like, you look at some other signings, uh, you know, I, I could mention uh, Alexander Lacazette, who joined mm-hmm. for, I think, 50 million and, of course, ends up going to Lyon on a free transfer just five years later. Uh, it's a tricky one because I think that Lacazette was uh, overpriced. I think that's clear. But with that being said, I, I just wonder, you know, would Arsenal have not been better off paying, I don't know, 60, 75 million, paying a little extra to get someone, perhaps someone younger, someone more dynamic, someone more complete. Okay, so the center forward position, like that is the one position where, you know, you don't want uh, cheap work done, okay? You, you mm-hmm. need to pay as much as it costs, okay? Because whereas, you know, a goalkeeper, you can find players like Jan Oblak uh, or even Thibaut Courtois, I believe was around 30 million, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you can find top quality players at, at a respectable rate. Same thing goes with, you know, defenders, midfielders. With strikers, though, you want to find the guy not just for the next two years, but for the next seven years. You want to find the guy who's got a physical, technical profile that could be perfectly uh, interwoven with Jurgen Klopp's high-pressing system. And you've got a guy who, above all, is just hungry to succeed. For me, I I like this signing a lot. Let me move on to another player, because one of the things Jurgen Klopp also said... um, that he likes players from Portugal. They're well coached, uh, well rounded technically. Uh, and um, another player that's uh, been mentioned quite a bit this morning is Vitinha from Porto. Uh, possibly uh, Porto said they've received an offer for him. Uh, tell me a little bit about this player and tell me um, whether you think he's someone that big clubs should be targeting. Absolutely. Well, Vitinha uh, was part of a very talented uh, Porto team. I believe that one the uh, 2019 UEFA Youth League. And that's where I started paying attention to him. Uh, some other very talented Porto youth players who, you know, did not really get many chances under Sergio Conceição. Uh, but, and, and that was really 
perhaps my biggest criticism of him as a Porto manager, just not giving uh, the players from the Olival uh, Academy production line an opportunity to shine. But it's interesting because I think we've seen that change over the past few months. Uh, and I think we can actually trace it back to a little after the end of last season, where Portugal uh, finished, uh, had, a, had a perfect record in their, um, in their group stage and eventually got to the final of the uh, U21 Euros, where they would lose to Germany. Um, so a very good run that saw a lot of Porto players, such as Vitinha uh, and his, his midfield, uh, player, midfield player Fabio Vieira, uh, Diogo Costa in goal. So I think, you know, in many ways, that momentum of, of seeing all of these Porto players shine, it, it really carried over. Uh, to, to Porto in the following season because we saw that Agustin Marquesin, you know, the starter in goal, uh, he, he was injured for the first few months, which saw Diogo Costa get the opportunity in goal. A few months later, not only has he been the undisputed starter in goal and one of the most promising goalkeepers really in Europe right now, but he's also starting for Portugal's national team, which, you know, speaks very highly. Look at the other positions, João Mario. Uh, you know, an attacking midfielder typically, but playing in an unnatural position of right back. Done a pretty good job there. Uh, and then moving on to midfield, Fabio Vieira um, has been a really creative force. And him, as well as Vitinho, those were, for me, the two biggest standouts uh, of Portugal's run to the final last year. I think that Vitinho, especially, though, I, there's an argument to be made that he has been uh, Porto's most important player this season. I think that Luis Diaz was definitely their best in the first few months of the season, but given the fact that he left uh, in January, you know, taking, taking him off, you have Otavio, okay, who's mm -hmm. been very effective in midfield. You have Vitinha, and you have likes of Pepe, Mbemba, Taremi. But for me, the Vitinha is that player who kind of weaves together uh, a team, you know, their, their midfield operation and possession and and progressing it further forward into the final third. Okay, so he's that, you know, creative player who I think can kind of uh, thread the needle. But not only that, because, you know, if you want to play, if you want to start under Sergio Conceição, you need to be an effective presser, an effective player off the ball who's not going to shy away from physical duels, who's going to be anticipating, uh, you know, that pass and trying to win it back. And Vitinha has shown that he can be that player. So, Whereas, you know, I think that, uh, you know, let's say a year ago when Vitinha was out on loan at Wolves yeah. and he frankly was not playing that much uh, under Nuno Espirito Santo until after his impressive group stage in March. Uh, after that, I believe he started playing a decent amount, but ultimately Wolves did not choose uh, to take up their 20 million uh, pound option to, to make that deal permanent. And just a year later, you know, he is only going to leave for 40 million pounds. That happens to be his release clause. There are rumors that teams are in the Premier League are, are willing to take up that uh, 40 million. So definitely Wolves looking like Wolves. But I think that one of Nuno's concerns uh, as, as that kind of manager was Vitinha's, frankly, uh, small, uh, small stature. Okay, mm -hmm. but also his you know, his ability to win those physical duels, those ground duels, those aerial duels. I think that Vitinha has shown that 
okay, he may not be that combative, a box-to-box midfielder, but he can do a job in a double pivot, right? With, you know, mm-hmm. the likes of uh, Otavio and, uh, and Mehdi Tanami and Evan Nielsen further ahead of him and trying to, you know, provide that defensive security. He can, he can do a job uh, in that degree. So I think it's because of that, right? Uh, obviously, the passing and the vision, those are perhaps his, his strongest suits, Vitinha. But with that being said, he is not just that, you know, luxury player who's going to need to be uh, accommodated in order for uh, a team to have a real midfield balance. Would you rate him higher than Frankie De Jong? Oof. Um, I, that's a tricky one. I think I would probably say that Frankie is better right now, but uh, it's close. I, I think that Vitinha is also perhaps more comfortable playing further forward. You know, I could see him becoming that, uh, that uh, you know, play, player in an advanced role. He's played more as a deep-lying playmaker in Porto's double pivot alongside uh, Mateo Sorive, who's more of that, I think, defensive midfield destroyer. Um, but they've formed a good uh, partnership in, in the double pivot. We also saw uh, after Uribe got injured, uh, I believe in the start of May, um, Marco Grujic, former Liverpool player who, who was signed, um, who was signed in the summer on a permanent deal, playing alongside and and doing fairly well. So, but yeah, Vitinha has been. I can't express how important he has been to this Porto team in terms of you know churning out uh, these solid, balanced performances. You really only have to look at uh, Porto's fixtures right this season because. They started off, I think, uh, they, they did not start as strongly as, uh, you know, in my opinion, Benfica or Sporting, okay? Uh, and really where that changed is, that, is where uh, Sergio Conceição finally uh, found out his preferred midfield balance because he was really experimenting with a lot of different players. And once Vitinha becomes the starter in, I want to say, like, uh, early to mid-November, Porto, the, their results they become almost perfect, okay? Porto ended up, you know, having the most amount of points in the history of the Primera Liga. They ended up, you know, winning the league title and the Tasa de Portugal, and overall Mm -hmm. just having a phenomenal season. Um, And, you know, one of the biggest reasons for that turnaround has been Vitinha uh, starting week in, week out at Porto. Let me ask you about another young player that made a big move this summer. Uh, too many, 100 million to Real Madrid, or there thereabouts. Uh, that's a lot of money for a young midfielder. How highly do you rate him? Do you think he's worth the money? So I think similarly to Darwin Nunez, I think, you know, is he a 100 million player right now? I don't think so, but I'm not going to say that he's overpriced because you look, Suamani, a player who has attracted interest, who was attracting interest from likes of Liverpool, Paris Saint-Germain, Chelsea. Okay, so you have to fend off that competition. You're also going to a club like Monaco, who, let's, let's remember, have historically known how to sell their young players for top dollar, whether that's Kylian Mbappe, Tiamoe, Bakayoko, Fabinho, okay? They're not going to be, uh, they're not going to be pushed around. And they also have, they're, they're one of the few teams, I think, outside of, uh, the Premier League, who actually have that capital to not be bossed around. So they could easily hang on to him for another season. Okay. Finally, you've got that age factor. And you've also got the factor that Real Madrid are in a phenomenal position 
financially, okay, in terms of getting Champions League money, getting sponsorships, freeing the wages of Marcelo, Gareth Bale, uh, and Isco off their wage bill, um, as well as the fact that uh, after, you know, failing to complete a deal for Kylian Mbappe, Mm-hmm. Uh, even even though that was going to be a free transfer, look at the signing on fee. You look at the wages. Right. That would have been an enormous amount of player, uh, money for one player. So you know, I said at the time that I think the winner, the biggest winner of uh, of, of Paris Saint Germain agreeing a renewal for Kylian Mbappe was going to be Monaco because they not only received a 35 million euro payout uh, due to him extending his contract. But they also, you know, it also meant that Real Madrid, not only, not only did they uh, have the money to, you know, splurge a little extra and pay top dollar for Chouameni, but also, let's not forget the pride, okay? Uh, Florentino Perez is a very prideful man. And after, let's not, after, you know, being humiliated by Paris Saint-Germain for this Mbappe deal, and really, you know, one of the few times in history where Perez has just looked uh, outmatched from a financial standpoint. I think that Perez definitely wanted to show that he wasn't going to be bossed around, he wasn't going to be humiliated, and he wasn't going to be beaten out by Paris Saint-Germain uh, for, for another player in Chouameni, for the, frankly, their top, pros- top uh, prized asset. So, you know, pride is a very powerful thing in football, and I definitely think that played a role but uh, with that being said, this is a, I think this is a very good signing for Real Madrid, okay? Aurelien Chouameni is a player who can fill in at multiple different roles, okay? Whether it's a holding midfield role, competing with Casemiro, whether it's replacing Toni Cruz or Luka Modric who are getting out the ice, get, you know, getting up there in age. I think that Chouameni has that unique sense of mobility, aggression, uh, passing, and you know, just having the ability to be in all areas at once. He is a really complete midfield profile. And honestly, I think there's a very, very good chance that uh, he is going to be a phenomenal signing and a long-term starter over a few years for Los Blancos. I do agree. I mean, they've got such a brilliant young midfielder, Valverde, the Chiamani, of course. Um, they've Camavinga, of course. And they've been really smart about making sure they replace Modric and Cruz before they leave. That causes me to turn my attention to Barcelona because there's a young man over there that uh, if you don't watch Spanish football, uh, you may not be uh, extremely aware of him, but you may not be forensically familiar with this guy. Is young Pedro at Barcelona. Um, absolutely incredible talent. Uh, he's already a Spanish international. Xavi uh, um, called him the best young player in the world. How good is this kid in comparison to Barcelona's previous golden generation of Xavi and Iesta and players of that caliber. Listen, I think it's it's still too early to compare Pedri to Xavi or Andres Iniesta. But that being said, this kid is one of the best prospects of his generation, okay? He has that unique combination of, you know, the, the work rate, off the ball, uh, constant pressing, never, stop, never stops running as well as that ability to beat defenses in so many different areas, right? Whether it's playing a one-two, whether it's dribbling through a sea of defenders, uh, whether it's weaving the lines with a phenomenal pass, he can really just uh, adapt to so many different uh, systems and, and be a threat in all of them. Um, and, and overall, I think similar to Benfica, right? 
neither team has made that many great decisions over the past few years. But, you know, rejecting those early offers for, for Darwin and rejecting Bayern's offer after the uh, Champions League loss, when let's not forget, Pesari had not played a single game for Barcelona yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think both of them turning out to be very good decisions in the long run. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, Carlo Ancelotti because um, we, we just finished talking about Real Madrid and, of course, the fact that they won the European Cup. And there's 14 European Cups. When we talk about the best managers in football, the iconic managers, Ancelotti almost never seems to get mentioned. And I still can't believe he was managing Everton last week or last season. This is a guy that... Uh, I'm going to turn that off. Uh, this is a guy that uh, has been has done absolutely unbelievable. I was looking at Jurgen Klopp's uh, record in finals, and it is he's got a twenty percent record in finals, and he's got disconnect my phone. Sorry, uh, he's got a twenty percent record in finals. Angelotti, unbelievable manager. Why are why does he never get mentioned in the same breath as the Guardiola's and the great managers in this game? Uh, you're absolutely correct. I don't think that he has been. You know, perhaps the box office manager of Jurgen Klopp or Pep Guardiola or Jose Mourinho. But uh, frankly, his record is unmatched, right? Five Champions Leagues and uh, winning the league in each of Europe's top five leagues. That is simply astonishing. That is something that no manager has come close to as of now. So, you know, frankly, he's done a phenomenal job in what has it been? Three decades, four decades managing now, you know, an absolutely incredible job. For me, he is one of the greatest managers of all time. I'm not sure where I would put him uh, alongside the likes of uh, Sir Alex Ferguson and Pep Guardiola, but he is definitely in the conversation, uh, you know. And I, I think that one thing perhaps that makes Ancelotti so underrated is that, you know, you look at perhaps the most talked about coaches. They are really players who, they're, they're really managers who, you know, will tweak their systems and, heavily tactically oriented, whether it's Thomas Tuchel, Pep Guardiola, Antonio Conte. Ancelotti, I think, is someone who perhaps sticks with his guns, but uh, believes that, you know, the simplicity is going to work. And I think he's also what we call a player's coach, uh, someone who knows how to deal with a ton of egos in the dressing room to make everyone feel valued and uh, overall to just get the most out of these superstar players. That's something that we've, we've seen from quite a few coaches is easier said than done. You know, you look at someone like uh, Mauricio Pochettino, who has frankly just been unable to get, out, get the most out of his superstars, right? And finding the balance between the likes of Neymar, Mbappe, and Messi. I think that Ancelotti has shown that, you know, it's, it's one thing to be a good tactician, but you also need to be a good, uh, shall we say, a snake charmer to get the most out of your players, to get them to click on all cylinders, and overall to just get them to work as a unit for one common goal. I was listening to John Dahl Thomason talk about him um, and saying this very thing, saying, look, one of the geniuses that Anzalati possesses is the ability to get the best out of the very best players. That's really hard to do in a collective group when you've got so many egos, so many uh, individuals. Yet he does it this better, I think, than almost anyone. He has this incredible ability to keep a happy dressing room, 
to work with the biggest players in the world, to get them to play as a unit. I mean, if you go through, it's amazing to me, PSG, so desperate to win a European Cup, um, allowed Angelotti. Was he sacked at PSG or did he leave? I think he was sacked, wasn't he, in the sack I season? Think, yeah. I, 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 are you sure about I thought he left for uh, Real Madrid just when he got the offer to replace Mourinho. Oh, possibly. But uh, I know that um, didn't he lose the league to Montpellier? And uh, they weren't particularly happy about that. Um, I could uh, be wrong on that. Yeah. Let, let me check right now. Okay. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm pro- but the, the, point I'm, the point that I'm making is this, that um, yeah. when you look at his European Cup record, I mean, yeah. Zidane's is incredible too. Surely when you look at um, PSG, desperate to win a European Cup, and I know that uh, Zinedine Zidane's agent came out today and said that uh, there's absolutely no truth to him going to PSG or wanting to go to PSG. Um, to me, if I want to win a European Cup, I go for Angelotti or I go for Zinedine Zidane. Um, where did PSG go after um, Pochettino and get someone better than Pochettino? Yeah, absolutely. I think that they will get rid of Mauricio Pochettino. Frankly, it has been an unredeemable uh, spell so far. It's come away with just the league title. And I think more so due to the ineptitude of their opponents more than anything else. I think that really uh, was enough for them to uh, sack him. But, but overall, I think the biggest, perhaps my biggest question mark with sacking Pochettino is, do Paris Saint-Germain have the right man to go to? Right. If it's Zinedine Zidane, I think that is an A-plus appointment. I think that he is just the guy with the amount of influence and uh, you know ability to work with these superstar players, heavily French squad. I think that would be a perfect appointment for them. Whether they can get him to uh, you know end his dreams of becoming France's new manager, I think that's easier said than done. That's why I don't expect Zidane to become Paris Saint-Germain's new manager. I think that uh, his dream job is to become a manager of France, the French national team. And we've seen as well that he is, he definitely has Marseille roots. So that perhaps would be something uh, that may play a role. But overall, Didier Deschamps, I would not be surprised, especially with the World Cup curse, that you know his days as France manager are numbered. Uh, looking at just terrible form over the past few weeks for Les Blues. I, I think that has perhaps... Uh, uh, that, that will play a role in Zidane rejecting uh, PSG's advances. I could potentially see them. I think, uh, for me, I believe that Paris Saint-Germain will end up uh, appointing Christophe Galtier, who obviously won uh, the league title with Lille and has experience working with Luis Campos. Uh, so that would be my pick, I think. Galtier, I don't see Zidane taking charge. But just going back to uh, Ancelotti. So he was appointed as Paris Saint-Germain manager um, on New Year's Eve with them three points behind Montpellier. And obviously, they ended up losing to uh, Montpellier with goals from Olivier Giroud, you know, very iconic streets won't forget team. Uh, The first full season, on the other hand, they ended up, you know, losing to Barcelona in the quarterfinals of the Champions League, as well as winning the first league title of uh, the new ownership and then on May 19th, he asked to leave the club uh, before joining Real Madrid and replacing Mourinho. One of the things that we've seen is the, uh, of course, Javier Tebas and LFP being really upset at PSG and Manchester yep. City floating uh, financial fair play. 
I look back at 2007, 2008, the last time we had a major economic recession that heavily impacted how football clubs could spend, especially highly leveraged ones. And I'm looking at inflation. I'm looking at interest rates being raised. I'm looking at the fact that um, the economic projection over the next year is certainly not healthy. How much do you think that's going to affect how clubs pay this summer? You know, I think it's, it's definitely a factor that's worth looking into, right? But with that being said, we've seen uh, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic blowback, we still saw quite a few clubs spend heavily. Uh, I don't think that it's going to have as big of an impact. Uh, frankly, a lot of these people who own, uh, who own these clubs, I think that whether it's Florentino Perez or Nasser Khalifi, you know, they, they are not going to be necessarily as affected by these economic blowback as, you know, the regular uh, person. So I, I don't think it will affect the transfer fees too much. As we've seen already with Darwin Nunez and Aurelian Chuamenio teams, they are going to want to pay top dollar to get their uh, top assets. We will see. Zach, we'll go ahead and leave it there, mate. I will be back again next week with another show. Uh, we will uh, be a little bit more consistent on unfortunately it's been difficult to be consistent on this as uh, those some people know i'm dealing with something extremely personal at the moment it's been quite difficult but we will get this show on track every week uh we'll have journalists we'll have different guests on and and sometime over the next couple of weeks we're going to start opening up to q a so that uh, we also get audio participation too so thanks to you for being remaining patient with us and that we will make sure uh going forward that this show has got a little bit more meat and potatoes to it so uh, Zach, thanks very much as always, man, for taking the time to do this. Absolutely. A pleasure as always, Phil. And yeah, this is honestly a really exciting uh, project that I'm, I'm super excited about. Uh, overall, yes, it's been a bumpy few weeks, but uh, overall, we are building for something, you know, in the Absolutely. long term. So really, thank you so much to everyone for tuning in and listening to us. You know, we really want to keep on trying to cover a diverse range of subjects. Uh, so, yeah, I'm super excited for what's going to be a really fun uh, end to June. Yeah. And if you get any players or anything you want us to profile, just drop us a, a message on Twitter and we'll go ahead and do it. So, Zach, all the best, man. Thank you so much. Absolutely.